The Relentless Forward Podcast is supported by GI Associates, one of the largest gastroenterology practices in the Southeast United States. Together with GI Associates, we are supporting the 70 by 2020 initiative, whose aim is to ensure that by 2020, 70% of those people who are eligible for colon cancer screenings actually get screened. Here in Mississippi, that number is at about 50%. So it's a big goal, but it's important because screenings actually save lives. So if you are in the Southeast United States and are eligible to get screened but haven't done so, email stinkyfeet at gi.md, use the uh, subject line stinkyfeet, and schedule your screening today. Uh, as a colon cancer survivor and someone with Lynch syndrome genetic mutation, which predisposes me to various cancers, I've had multiple colonoscopies and upper endoscopies at GI Associates, so I know firsthand how much they care about their patients. Screening can actually save lives. So don't wait. Again, email stinkyfeet at gi.md. Use the subject line stinkyfeet and get your screening scheduled today. My guest today is on the short list of the real life most interesting people in the world. She's a leader in the field of cancer philanthropy and awareness. She's a retired triathlete with an extremely impressive resume of achievements. She's a mountaineer with at least a couple impressive summits to her credit. She's an adventurer in the truest sense of the word. She's a world traveler, been to every continent, over 50 countries. She's a personal trainer, a triathlon coach, and uh, does freelance on-air talent. I guess this would be considered freelance on-air talent today. And she's also, and most importantly, spending her days now battling her most recent cancer diagnosis and inspiring others along the way. She's also one of my personal heroes. And there are people in this world who just simply bring light to any darkness around them, and my guest today is one of those people. Her name is Wendy Chioji. Wendy, welcome to the Relentless Forward Podcast. Wow, that was a list of really nice things to say about me. Thanks, Jeremy. Well, it was a short list, too. There was actually a longer <laughs> list. That's that's all I could fit in the intro. <laughs> so let me uh, first tell everybody that's listening kind of how we first met, at least as I recall. Um, yep. I think the first time we were we met or were introduced was on a conference call and probably in 2013 as we were preparing for an expedition to Mount Kilimanjaro. We were both on a fundraising expedition called Survivor Summit that was raising money for the Livestrong Foundation and we would attempt to summit Mount Kilimanjaro. And I think what's interesting to me is I had no idea at that time, I didn't know who the caliber of these people were on this call, present company included, and I had no idea how that was going to affect my life. I just thought it was a bunch of really average people like me, but I was wrong. So that's kind of how our paths have converged, which I think is pretty interesting. Yeah, not so average, really. I think that me personally, I thought that it was going to be um, a walk in the park. And it turned <laughs> out to be incredibly difficult. And uh, thanks to the, the people that were all with us, our team, we all got up um, to, the, to, to the summit. But um, it, there were some dark days in there. I have to admit there were some tough days. I, uh, I know you had a little rough time as we neared the summit and, and yeah. we can talk about that a little more later too. And then at one point I know your uh, one of our favorite stories is your puffy coat went flying <laughs> off the mountain, which could have been a disaster, but disaster was averted. So we did end up standing together on the roof of Africa, which was a pretty cool yeah. moment. Um, and that, of course, is for me, it's a high point in my life story. And it's probably one of the ones in yours, although you've had a lot of high points. So um, before we get too deep into that, let's talk a little bit about your background. So you attended Indiana University. And did you yeah. grow up in Indiana? 
I did, and I actually grew up. My dad was Navy, so we did some moving around. And then when he went into Navy Reserves, we moved to Washington D.C., and that was um, in 1969. So I was in elementary school. Don't do the math, so you don't know how old I am. <laughs> Not that I really care. Um, yeah. So my parents both went to Purdue, which is a huge rival of Indiana. So it just kind of made sense that I go to Indiana. So that's where I went. It was a great four years. I love the Midwest. So being a Hoosier is better than being a Boilermaker. In my mind. In your mind, sure. Arguments about that in my household. So after graduation, what was your first career? What, where did your career path take you? Yeah, so I um, actually moved back home to my family because I didn't get a job. I, I couldn't believe I didn't get a job in Los Angeles right out of college. So I moved back home and um, waited tables for the summer and then got a job in Little Abilene, Texas, which is three hours west of Dallas. Um, and it was, a, it, was a, it was interesting. I worked for a TV station that only did news from Monday to Friday because we figured we'd tell them what happened on the weekend on the following Monday. Um, it was it was terrific. It was a whole bunch of 20 to 30-year-olds just trying to run a television station, and the learning curve was gigantic. I loved it. I actually still talk to people from those those early years. That's really neat. So that's prob- that was probably a, a way that you really became kind of an expert in that field is because you probably, the, like you said, the learning curve was pretty steep when you started, so you had to, you had to learn or you were going to be terrible, I suppose. Sure. Be able to fix equipment in the field, um, equipment which is probably now in the Smithsonian because we've evolved so much since then. <laughs> but yeah, you had to really, um, you had to be super creative. It's not like I, I worked also in Orlando in the Orlando television market for 20 years, and still still go getters, still really creative people. But you um, in that first TV station when you're 20 years old and trying to fill 30 minutes of news twice a day, it um, takes a lot. Because not a lot happens in Abilene, you have to be pretty darn creative. I would imagine so, but that's probably that probably start. You've probably always been a little that way anyway. But that probably started a theme in your life where things would come up that you weren't necessarily trained or prepared for, but you're going to have to handle and figure out a way through it. And so sure. that's probably going to become a recurring theme as we keep talking. I imagine. Kind of been a life post for me, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. So <clears throat> now you've come a long ways. You're a nationally recognizable figure um, in, the, in the battle against cancer. And um, your efforts have raised over $250,000 for the Livestrong Foundation and that's yeah. and uh, multiple other foundations as well. So talk about, a li- let's start with just your, well, let's start with your first cancer diagnosis and how that kind of got started. So we've talked a little about your career. So in 2001, you were diagnosed with stage two breast cancer. So yeah. how did that... Uh, you know, where'd that take your life? Yeah, so um, I I always, I wasn't that surprised by the diagnosis, which just sounds odd. But um, so I was diagnosed. I knew I was going to have to have surgery. I knew there was going to be chemo. I was trying to figure out how to, because I'm not a whisperer, which you know. I'm a talker <laughs> or a shouter. So I wasn't going to whisper and I wasn't going to hide. I was going to announce to the viewers what was going on. And I was going to um, try to educate them along along the way because the only way to me uh, fear is comes from mostly not knowing lack of education so the more that you can talk about stuff the more you can dispel fear and that was what prompted me to do my first blog which was even before you called it a blog but it was on my tv station's website and every thursday for two or three years i would write about what was happening very personal um i think it took away a lot of fear um and i felt compelled to to uh, do that because i was always a huge fan of lance armstrong and um had read his book by then, and I knew that he 
after doing a chemo treatment would go out and I'm sure you can be amazed by this too having been through it yourself he'd go out and ride 50 miles on his bike and I could walk around the block but that was good enough for me it was a, it was something that uh, motivated me I mean I drove around with his book it's not about the bike on my passenger seat for a year um, so yeah, that's where that started and, and another thing that he always said after it w- was um, evident that I was going to live um, uh, and not that I ever came close to death lots of people um, go through much worse times with breast cancer than I did but he always talks about the obligation of the cured um, to make the path easier for people who are going to come after which you're doing with this podcast and what you're doing with your lifestyle and I try to do the same thing I feel obligated to make it easier for people coming after that's interesting I uh, I had a similar experience after my first diagnosis it was <clears throat> once you get past the point where you aren't sure you're going to live at least for the time being. Then immediately what kicked in for me was I called it the survivor's responsibility. And Absolutely. it's just, just something that comes out. And it, I think it's what joins a lot of cancer survivors together. We, you know, there's things that as cancer survivors, only we can understand. And it's, that's, that's one of the things is that obligation or that survivor's yeah. responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I get some people have, incredibly terrible experiences and don't want to reach out. But, um, I mean, there's a reason, because I don't believe there's coincidence. There's a reason this happens to me now three times. Um, I'm able to raise money. I'm able to talk about it. I don't mind talking about myself. I do it all the time. Um, and, uh, yeah, you can try to make things better for other people. I agree. And you, so you mentioned early on in that, in that um, part, you said you were not really surprised by your first cancer diagnosis. What did you mean by that? You know, I don't really know why. So there is breast cancer. I have a, my maternal grandmother had breast cancer, but she was diagnosed postmenopausally, so it didn't really count as a familial a genetic link. But I really wasn't that surprised. It's like I, I, I don't really know why. Um, I don't really know why. But I wasn't that surprised, and I wasn't. I never had the the terror that I, that I hear a lot of people talking about, and the the fear that they're going to die. Um, I never really had that, um, and I don't know why. I, um, like I said, nothing's a coincidence. Maybe I was just prepared for it on another cosmic level. I don't know. Yeah, you were born for this, apparently. I. That's funny yeah, because I, my my first cancer diagnosis, I always say it was like some. My life was a was a was a piece of glass or a mirror, and somebody just shattered it with a hammer. But I, I don't remember terror necessarily either. I was scared, obviously, but you know you learn pretty quickly how to deal with it. And I think sometimes it's easier for the person that's with diagnosed with cancer than it is for their loved ones. I would absolutely agree with that. So, yeah. um, and you mentioned earlier also the stigma of cancer. I think, well, maybe I put words in your mouth, but no. I know I've heard you say it before. There was a stigma of cancer, but you know when yeah. we were younger... Yeah. yeah, you got to whisper it. I like that. Yeah, she whispered if you could. I can see her, but you can't. Uh, <laughs> but there was a there was a stigma, and I, I, I had forgotten about the stigma when I got diagnosed. So it, it never dawned on me that there was a stigma. I was just like I was going to be public with it. I was kind of like you. I just felt like that was something I was supposed to do. But then I rec- I recollected when I was younger there was a stigma with cancer. Why do you think that was, or what? Why were people scared to talk about it? You know, and again, it's lack of education um, leads to fear. I think that's totally true. Um, I think that in this country, people have been super dynamic and proactive about pushing early screenings, about talking about it now, about raising money, raising awareness. And I think that decades of doing that have made a, a huge difference. But 
I do remember um, people didn't really talk about cancer. It was almost like you had to be embarrassed to get it, something you did something bad. I mean, it's still that way in other countries around the world that it's uh, still got that stigma. Um, yeah, but I think we're super lucky to live in this country where we're um, much more able and educated to deal with that diagnosis of cancer. And I've seen even, you know, cancer connects you with other, it just automatically, the, the universe connects you with other people who have cancer. It's just the way it is. And cancer, unfortunately, is pretty prevalent. But I've even seen people today that, that I know that have been friends with me or have seen me publicly, you know, battle or address cancer, and they get diagnosed with cancer, and even they find a stigma to it. There's some reason they don't want to um, bring it up or talk, in, talk about it. And yeah, I, it's, it's, I don't it's know, weird. Fear, you know, lack of control. I don't know. I'm not sure. It's vulnerability. All of a sudden, you're vulnerable, and this could kill you, or this could maim you, or this could ruin your marriage, or um, maybe it's that too. Yeah, for it's, sure. So you said so you you know you talked about Lance Armstrong, which obviously leads to the Livestrong Foundation, and as I mentioned earlier, you have in, historically raised over two hundred and fifty thousand dollars for the Livestrong yeah. Foundation, which is a great organization, I think. And tell me a little bit about Livestrong and your involvement with them. Yeah, I had almost a twenty-year relationship with Livestrong. I always liked, and I still like their mission. They're very pragmatic. People are going to get cancer, so we're going to deal with fertility and education and transportation and uh, recovery and um, survivorship. I really like that. And Livestrong through the years, particularly after Lance left, elephant in the room, um, has morphed into a smaller, I think, a more nimble organization, um, but that is still finding its feet. But the, the, the very fact that it is still thriving and still strong with many people that I love and respect still very key to the organization and involved with it both as staff and volunteers says a lot about it sure and so that's actually how that's how we my wife claire and i ended up on the kilimanjaro expedition with you was we had you know in the first few days after my diagnosis we we were relatively newly married only a year and we had wanted to have kids so fertility was a big issue so when we started you know, trying to figure out what to do. One of the first places I figured to go was the Livestrong Foundation. And we didn't end up having to take a lot of their services, but they did send us some information and just kind of, they were a little light in the darkness that said, we have some answers for you. Um, and that's how we got started as well. So I think they do, like you said, they do, they have a lot of pragmatic um, programs that really just help people. Yeah. Yeah. They're, um, there's uh, newly diagnosed folders, which I believe that are now online, um, are some of the most helpful, um, tools for newly diagnosed people. It's got a list of questions to take into your doctor that first time in places to write down the answers because you don't listen or you don't remember unless you take somebody with you and they may or may not remember depending on how emotionally <laughs> effective they are. Yeah, super, super practical. They do a great job. Yeah, so then, so recently um, you have kind of switched some of your focus over to another organization yeah. Um, called Pelotonia. I'm actually, you can't see it. They, well, you can, they can. I'm wearing a Pelotonia shirt today because we rode last year together in their, uh, in their bike ride. So can you tell me a little bit about Pelotonia and why you're involved with them? Sure, because there are a couple of reasons um, that I um, turned my focus. I still have much, much love for Livestrong, but I have turned my focus to Pelotonia. Um, years ago, decades ago, Livestrong changed its focus from putting any dollars toward research to all practical, this is the patients. Well, all of a sudden, I've got this new cancer that is 
has no standard of care. So all of a sudden, the way that I'm going to live longer is to have some fund some research that's going to do some clinical trial or some test that's going to be able to treat and extend my life. So my personal focus has changed. Um, that was a, a big part of it. So that's why I'm raising money primarily for Palatonia as well. In addition, the, um, the, the longtime, 14-year, I think, CEO of Lustrum, Doug Ullman, who you and I know and love very well, moved over to Palatonia, and he's so dynamic. And I loved what he did with Livestrom, taking it from this teeny little grassroots organization to this gigantic behemoth that makes policy changes and changes in other countries around the world able, uh, possible for cancer survivors and cancer treatment. And I'm watching him do the same thing with Pelotonia. Granted, it was a bigger organization when he came, but uh, he has definitely put his touch on it. And it's, it feels like home, doesn't it? It does. I think it's a really neat... Uh... There's, well, there's something, you know, Doug is a very magnetic personality. He's a really good, when you're around him, you just know he's a good dude. Yeah, and yeah. Everybody wants to be friends with Doug. I've never seen anybody sure. that's so magnetic with everybody. But he's he comes from a good place. He has a good heart. Um, and, it, yeah, so the organization, Pelotonia, has been really neat for me, too. I actually, my second cancer diagnosis last year was a lymphoma. Um, I reached out, it was a rare one. I reached out to Doug just kind of on a whim, thinking, oh, maybe he knows somebody. And within two weeks, we are at Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, staying at Doug's house, meeting some of the greatest doctors in the world. And it all happened just by, just by Doug. So I'm, I'm personally really thankful to him, and I want to support you know his organization and all the good stuff he does. Yep. So you were a, uh, were you a triathlete before cancer? I had done one or two triathlons before Cancer and the funny story, because I've done a lot of public speaking about cancer diagnosis in 2001 when I was diagnosed, literally, and I'm such an idiot, but the very first thought that went through my head was, dang, there goes my triathlon season, because I was diagnosed in April, which is the start of triathlon season. Um, so yeah, so I didn't, uh, I did them a couple, but I, it wasn't truly a life passion until years later. So uh, how, how did cancer affect and let me back up a little bit. So I think there's a huge, you know, I was a runner before I got cancer, but I wasn't super serious about it. But I found there's, to me, there's such a correlation between any type of endurance athletics, endurance sports, triathlon, marathoning, ultra marathoning, and cancer. I find there's a correlation there. Do you see that correlation? And what, what do you think? Why do you think that is? Absolutely. For me, and I've um, spoken about this a lot, it's um, all of a sudden, crossing that finish line is much more symbolic than crossing the finish line and getting the medal that everybody gets. Um, all of a sudden, it's it's that it's a 3.1 miles or a 13.1 miles farther away, further away from your cancer diagnosis. Look, I can do this. And cancer, you can beat me down for 10 months, but look, I'm going to come back and I'm going to qualify for this race or that race. I'm going to run the Boston Marathon. Um, I think that, that that's what it is. It's just um, proving that you're not sick. I, I think that has a lot to do with it. I agree. Me. Yeah, there is. It's just it gives you – there's a different mentality that comes with it, and you feel like you almost have something to prove. So yeah, absolutely. How did you – so you ended up in uh, – you ended up participating at the Kona World Championships. What year was that? 2012. And how did you end up there? That's got to be a good story. Yeah, so um, of course, I won't say every uh, everybody has a different reason for racing Ironman. Besides, they're all kind of dim-witted. <laughs> Speaking for myself again, but um, so um, anyway, in my circle of friends, fairly competitive. 
always trying to get to that world championship. So you try, and um, to be able to get in triathlon, you have to, in my age group and being a female, being a top two or three finishers in your age group for a triathlon. And um, when I was in Lake Placid in, in uh, 2012, I actually managed to do it. Um, I came in second. And if I had worked harder on my run, I could have won it because I was passed by the runner, by a runner who beat me. So at one point, I was leading my age group, which has never happened before an Ironman race. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So I got to go to Kona. It was amazing. That's it's really a, incredible. That, yeah. Well, I'll try to get, I, if I ever get in there, somebody's going to have to buy my way in because I'm not getting there by skill alone. That's for sure. So yeah. you mentioned you'd yeah. also, you've also run in Boston. How was that? Yeah, that was amazing too. So the Boston, the Boston story is interesting because that was in 2001 and I had uh, qualified to race with two of my girlfriends who are my racing partners. And about six weeks before I went to the doctor's office and he's, uh, my doctor was like, well, there's a lump in your breast. And I said, I've qualified for the Boston Marathon. It's in six weeks. I'm with my girlfriends, and if they qualify too, can I run it? And he said, you're 39 years old. Absolutely go run it. What's the worst thing that could happen? Ran the race. We all finished holding hands. I came home. That, uh, that was Monday because it's always on Patriots Day, Monday. And I was in surgery by Friday wow. because of breast cancer. The lump in my breast wasn't nothing. It was actually breast cancer. Wow, that is an incredible story. That's amazing. Ah, well, yeah, so I don't need to run the Boston Marathon again. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's see. So that so let's let's jump back then a little bit into cancer. So you fought and and got past the 2001 um, breast cancer diagnosis, and then you did Ironman Kona in 2012, and yeah. then in 2013 you had another shock uh, with a second cancer diagnosis. Let's talk about right, that. Right, and, and 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 this is an interesting perspective as well. So I get an MRI, breast MRI, every year and have since 2001. And um, a very on top of it, radiologist at the Huntsman Cancer Center here in Salt Lake City um, noticed that there was a mass in the bottom of my uh, sternum, which turned out to be this very rare thymic carcinoma to thymic cancer. So basically my breast cancer, because I had breast cancer, it saved my life because thymic carcinoma is symptomless. So most people at that time in 2013 are diagnosed in stage four. All the clinical trials were end of life in 2013. Um, if it hadn't been for that MRI for my breast cancer, I probably wouldn't be around to do this groovy podcast with you. Well, we're glad you're here. And I think, so, so I think, uh, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, we were so we climbed uh, Kilimanjaro in February of 2014, and I recall that you had just recently either completed or were undergoing treatments for this this thymic carcinoma diagnosis. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah, but, but I had, so for that first time around, it was a low dose carboplatin chemo, and on top of uh, 28 many endless days of radiation, and that ended 10 weeks before. Um, 10 weeks before, yeah. Yeah, so I didn't get a whole lot of great training in. And um, so the unbelievable Mark Middleton from Growing Boulder actually did a documentary, which hopefully everybody can see. And I go back and I look at the documentary and I was like, holy cow, I look sick. Who let me climb a mountain? <laughs> you... Super skinny, kind of pale. So I was Claire and my wife and I will joke sometimes that I some, we look back at pictures and I'm like, oh, I look like a cancer patient. And probably right? because I was a cancer patient. Right, exactly. So that trip, uh, so we climbed Kilimanjaro. That was quite a uh, quite an adventure. We've mentioned a couple people that were on the trip with Doug Allman and Mark Middleton and then the documentary. But 
you know, what did that, uh, what did that trip mean to you? What did that expedition mean to you? You know, it was truly life-changing because we had all agreed when we went up that if we didn't, all 16 of us didn't make it, then none of us were going to make it. Um, we're going to attempt it, which is a huge, huge promise to make to a group that you don't even know. I mean, now much different. We're all, we all love each other very much, but back then we didn't even know each other. And we threw that out there and everybody was like, yeah, okay, we could do that. So I think that the, um, it was so impactful, just the, the value of the team and how we saved each other in little ways and big ways every single day. Um, I think that that will uh, affect me for the rest of my life. Me too. It was quite, it was an amazing adventure. And even now I'm, I'm sitting here talking to Wendy Chioji, which is just amazing to me. And then I, to people like Doug Allman and just everybody that was on the trip were really yeah. amazing people. It was really life. I think, I, I think in the documentary, you and Mark say it was life challenging and life changing. And it was, it was both of those things. Uh, so yeah, it, was hard. it was a little hard, wasn't it? It was not the easiest really thing hard. in the world. You made it look easy. It was no problem. No, I didn't. I didn't. I was suffering. I was counting songs in my head. I was counting steps we were taking. So after that, you uh, we did that. And then back in 2014, not long after, I believe, we finished our climb, you had a recurrence of your thymic carcinoma. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. So we went in February, and in August, I was re-diagnosed. And again, it was that breast MRI. And the radiologist at the Huntsman Cancer Center that found it again um, and this time it would have been more difficult to find because I had the original tumor taken out. Um, so now we're talking about little teeny little tumors throughout the pleura, which is the lung lining. And that's what the radiologist found that time. So now even my, my oncologist at Huntsman was like, well, you got to find a clinical trial because there is no standard of care. And we kind of went into the original chemo and radiation. It's a lung cancer treatment. Because there is no standard of care. Nobody at Huntsman had ever even seen thymic carcinoma um, before. So, yeah, nobody really knows what to do. I did a lot of research um, and looked at the clinical trials. And um, with the help of some angels that I didn't even know, got into my first one at the NIH in Bethesda. That's incredible. So cl clinical trials, uh, tell me, I don't know that much about how that works. Can you kind yeah. of give everybody, and most people probably don't, we all think we just get cancer, you go to the doctor, they treat it. Right. That wasn't an option for you. You needed a clinical trial. And like you said, a lot of those were caught later. So it was, you know, end of life type treatment. Yep. So yep. Tell, tell us more about clinical trials in general and how that works. Yeah. So um, and actually that NIH trial for my recurrent thymic carcinoma was the second trial that I did. Because when I had breast cancer in 2001, I actually, my second round of chemo was with a, a drug that was in clinical trial. Um, because my marathon partner, who was also my oncologist back then, said, you're going to get sick and your hair is going to fall out. But if you do this trial and it works, then a decade or a generation from now, maybe that's not going to happen for somebody. Um, and I would have done it anyway, but he pretty much gave me no choice to do it. So, But but that was not a, a life or death thing now. Now it's a life or death thing. And I couldn't, you know, I put out feelers. I have a blog. Um, I asked people to help. The Orlando Sentinel, the newspaper um, television critic, ran one of my blogs, ran a story on me um, looking for a trial, and a, a producer in um, New York, a producer for Scott Pelley for the news, um, somebody sent it to her and said, you have to help this woman, because this woman, Maria Mercator, was a thymoma survivor, multiple-time cancer survivor, 
And on Labor Day weekend, she got doctors at the NIH to call me back. Wow. Yeah. And so that's how I got into the first one. The first one and that was in, um, yeah, 2014. It lasted a few months. It was a good one for me for a while. That's amazing. So I, I have a thing I often tell people that get diagnosed with cancer. And I, I give credit to you for this. And I'm not really sure if that's right or not, but just take it for what it's worth. Uh, I, I, one of the things I learned early on was to, when you get diagnosed with cancer, to listen to, to, to understand your diagnosis, but don't try to worry about your prognosis. That's a great, that's not for me. You know who that's from? That's from Stuart Scott. Oh, was it? Okay. He was a, he never wanted to know how many, what stage he was in, what his future was. Oh, he never wanted to know because damn it didn't matter. It was every day I fight. It's day by day by day. Yeah. That's interesting. And I've told people that before because I kind of, I, when I was diagnosed with my colon cancer, the average age of colon cancer diagnosis, I was 38 and the average age was of diagnosis like 72. So when you, you know, yeah, nothing made sense. All these, all the prognosis and, and I looked at studies and everything and it just didn't make a lot of sense. So let's talk a little bit about Stuart Scott. So tell me your background with, with him. Sure. So he uh, was in Raleigh as a news reporter and it was in the, like, gosh, probably early 90s. He came to Orlando to my TV station. I was the weekend anchor, and he was my sports guy on the weekends. So um, we got to be really close, you know, working on the weekends and helping each other out. And he was hilarious, and we just really clicked. And um, he got married while he was there and was very close with his wife and had two kids and then went on to ESPN2, left us to go to ESPN2, and that's where everybody knows him from is um, – his ESPN days, but he was, uh, he did a weekend sports with me, his very first sports job. That's really amazing. He's been a major inspiration to a lot of people and to me included. And if anybody doesn't know who Stuart Scott is, if you follow sports at all, you know who he was. He passed away, I think. Booyah. Yeah, Booyah, you probably remember that. Three years now, which is so hard to believe. I think three. Um, So hard to believe. And one of the things that I thought was really amazing when he, I think he spoke at the ESPYs, it was not long before he passed, and he talked about how you defeat cancer. And this is something that I try to live by, and I know you do too, and you don't, you don't necessarily beat cancer by living through cancer. You know, he talked about how you beat cancer by how you live, why you have cancer, and who you inspire, right. and what you do. And I think you live by that mantra or mantra a little bit. So... You probably do, and you can talk about that. But then do you also have some a personal mantra that keeps you going, something like that? My thing is, um, I mean, we all have a limited time here on Earth. And I know, because I'm very realistic, that mine's going to be more limited than I had ever planned um, and more limited than most of the people around me, my friends. So I just want to make every single hour of every day mean something, uh, make life better for myself, make life better for other people, experience things, expose people including myself to things because um, we're all so lucky to be here uh, I think that um, not taking advantage of that not living a big life is just a crime um, speaking for myself everybody has their own motivations their own limitations but for me um, blessed enough to um, be able to take advantage of a lot of opportunities so I try to do that I think that's great and I take I took a lot of that from you that's how I ended up on in Kilimanjaro or doing my own Iron Man I was always grew up as somebody who talked about what I was going to do sometime in the future. Someday I'll do this. Someday I'll do that. I just lived on the maybe someday. But yeah, then exactly. if you get a cancer diagnosis, well, someday is now. It's today. It's today. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah, because tomorrow, who knows what tomorrow is. I know. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, it really drives you. And, and I've seen it drive you to achieve more and see more of the world. And so you've got a lot of adventures planned, I know, coming up. You uh, Well, let's talk about last year, I think you went to Antarctica. Yeah, Antarctica, southern um, Argentina twice. Um, I had a great, I can't remember exactly, it wasn't January to December, but there was a one-year span where I, yeah, I went to sail the sailboat to Antarctica, went to South America twice, Australia, and and hit my 49th and 50th states, all in the same 12-month span. (laughs) That's pretty good. So do you think you would be doing that if it wasn't for um, your battles with cancer? Absolutely not. I left um, my t- the TV station that I'd worked at in Orlando for 20 years in 2008, um, mostly because for me, everything had changed. It was getting to be a point where um, on Sunday night, I was dreading going to work on Monday. Um, and there were a whole confluence of elements, both under my control and not, that um, were signaling to me that it was time to, to leave if I wanted to live, live a full life. And my station, I'm grateful to them for making it possible for me to, to just pick up and drop everything and move to a town where I knew two people, which is Park City, Utah, where I've now been for almost 10 years. Um, I absolutely would still be at my TV station um, and probably not that happy if I hadn't uh, gotten the cancer diagnosis and realized that the time is now. One of our um, co uh, summiteers is that the right word? Uh, Bree Sandlin, yeah. um, in the documentary that we were um, – you know, featured in Conquering Kilimanjaro, um, she said something that uh, I can't remember the exact quote, but she had heard after she got diagnosed with breast cancer, she had read a statistic from Livestrong that said something like 70% or 80% of people who are diagnosed with cancer and, you know, come out on the other side and, and live through it are actually thankful or feel blessed that they were diagnosed with cancer. I've experienced that a little bit, but have you experienced that as well? Every day. Every day. I mean, we. I wouldn't have done the Survivor Summit. I would have met all of you. I wouldn't have. Um, there's so much in my life that wouldn't have. I could pretty say pretty confidently would not have materialized if I hadn't been through that experience. Absolutely. So what can someone who hasn't been diagnosed with cancer, how can they, you know, how can they capture that? How can they find that inspiration this is probably a tough question how can they find that inspiration without having to go through something like a cancer diagnosis yeah you know that's a tough one because i see people um i see people that aren't taking advantage of everything that are letting opportunities slip by and you can't really i mean you can't really install that sense of urgency in people um because i think that people who haven't had to face and it doesn't even have to be cancer it could be a car accident a plane crash it could be anything that they survive a a relative passing away son or daughter parents um you can't really install that sense of urgency to live big um in someone who hasn't faced a lot of challenges and you know they're so lucky that they haven't done that um i think the key is just not to try to get them not to take it for granted that really when i was going just a little side story here really short like really briefly when I was going through chemo for my um, breast cancer in 2001, I was walking on the treadmill at a gym, and the, uh, the World Trade Centers were taken down. And I wrote on my blog that night, I was like, you know, if this disease is something that kills me, I'm going to have weeks and months to say goodbye to people, put my affairs in order, find somebody to take care of my cats. 
And those people went to work in the morning and maybe they were snippy with their husband or wife. Maybe they shouted at their kid. And that was the last thing for forever for them. Um, and I'm not sure exactly where I was going with that story, but that sense of urgency, it should exist in people whether or not they've lived through a crisis. But I can under- I understand that it's difficult. It is difficult. I think what, you know, and I think we're probably like this podcast, for example, is a way we try to pass that along to people. And I know you do that with your blog. And, you know, whenever you post a new blog about your journey on Facebook or wherever, it just the the amount of inspiration it it generates is really amazing. It works for me every time. A lot of it's great because a lot of times you will post something and Claire will make sure she'll say, did you read Wendy's blog? You know, we have to make sure that we all read it. So I think you're already doing that, but it is tough, and I hope that our podcast, you know, talking like this, um, will help uh, help people do that. So we've talked a little bit about Stuart Scott, Doug Allman, Mark Middleton. So who are some other people who have influenced you in your life? You know, um, I say, so, you know, you you prepped me with that question, and um, Stuart and Lance were gonna uh, come up, Mark and Doug. Um, I think that, and you. I think that anybody who um, just surrounds your life with passion and, and doesn't get cut off with the, the rinky-dink or sometimes bigger anxiety-producing problems that I know I feel anxious anxiety um, over our political climate today and things that are happening, um, people who are able to still find bright spots and still push forward and be optimistic, I pull strength from all of them. So not necessarily one person over and over, but actions of people and authenticity of people i i get a lot of inspiration from pretty much anybody that's really good so let's talk about the the elephant in the room as you put it earlier um lance armstrong who's who kind of drew you to the Livestrong foundation he kind of drew me indirectly he doesn't know this of course but he drew me or in, in, inspired me to really start just on my own you know fitness journey um, I had, I, I had in my thirties, I had grown stressed and out of shape and overweight. And I remember I had started running a little bit and I remember reading his book and I was inspired by it, but he's a very polarizing figure now. Um, I find I could be wrong about this. It seems like people who have had cancer have a much more sympathetic view than people that haven't. Um, I but totally what, agree with that. what are your thoughts about it? I think he's been polarizing all his life. <laughs> I think he's less polarizing now than when he was a competitor. But I think that um, it, it's amazing to me the, the, the amount of vitriol that people who never even knew the guy or raced bikes against the guy have for him and contempt. Um, I think that I'm not sure that it's, to me, it's not deserved. To me, when you look at the big picture of the guy, which is how I hope people look at me, the big picture of me, not just the 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 reporter who asked really uncomfortable questions, but the big picture of me. Um, he is the one, he and his foundation are the ones that make cancer a global conversation. He's the one who start, started people, uh, started making people not whisper cancer, the word. So um, I think that in hindsight, he's going to get all the credit that he deserves about that. And right now it's just a little too mixed up with everything. People are so angry. Um, about everything, but I think that he's um, he's single-handedly, and with the support of his foundation, which was a big hammer, um, really made this a global conversation. I agree. I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. Yeah. I'm a homer. I, I admit it. <laughs> I, and I still like him too. I know there. Uh, 
I, I just he was an incredible athlete and he just just through the like we talked about with the survivor's responsibility or or just lighting a fire under you once you're diagnosed with cancer you look at things differently because of cancer that's it's almost like a filter that goes over your eyes that either for good or for better or for worse it changes the way you see the world absolutely um, and a lot of times in a lot of cases and in yours it changes the world i think you the way you see it it changes it um or you're able to change things in a way that make the world a better place and that's one thing, yeah and that's one thing i appreciate about you and uh that's why i'm happy to be your friend so we'll probably have to wrap this up pretty soon i don't want to i'd hate to do that but i'm afraid i'm going to run out of time so next up we're going to be riding pelotonia the 200 yeah. miles this year I don't think I'm going to do time for it this year. I struggled last year, and this year I'm even in worse shape. But um, we'll give it a go. It's just, you know, it's all um, – and one thing we haven't talked about is I'm currently in my fourth trial for this oh, uh, yeah. this cancer. Um, and this cool. particular drug it seriously compromises my, my breathing and my heart. So um, I'm not sure that I've got 200 miles in two days in me this year, but uh, I will have something to do. Well, I what, our friend, sure. our friend Nelson, who was one of our guides on our Kilimanjaro climb, is going to be there, and he's a really strong cyclist. So I volunteer yeah. that you and he ride a tandem, and that way, whenever you get tired, he can just do all the heavy work, and we can I all can do two hundred. I like that. Yeah, that's kind of how he. Listening. That's kind of <laughs> how he got some of us up the mountain. I think was just kind of dragging us up the mountain. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But uh, Wendy, thank you for being my guest today. Um, you are truly uh, a legitimate inspiration to me, and I know the people that hear this are going to be inspired. And thank you, like I said earlier, for bringing light to the darkness around you. Awesome. And um, I'll see you in August. It sounds great. And All we'll right. talk before. Okay, Wendy, thanks. Got to run. Okay, bye.